You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. We come unbidden into this life. And if we are lucky, we find a purpose beyond starvation, misery, and early death, which, lest we forget, is the common lot. I grew up and I found my purpose, and it was to become a physician. My intent wasn't to save the world as much as to heal myself. Few doctors will admit this, certainly not young ones. But subconsciously, in entering the profession, we must believe that ministering to others will heal our woundedness. And it can, but it can also deepen the wound. I chose the specialty of surgery because of matron, that steady presence during my boyhood and adolescence. What is the hardest thing you can possibly do, she said, when I went to her for advice on the darkest day of the first half of my life. I squirmed how easily matron probed the gap between ambition and expediency. Why must I do what is hardest, matron? Because, Marion, you are an instrument of God. Don't leave the instrument sitting in its case, my son. Play. Leave no part of your instrument unexplored. Why settle for three blind mice when you can play the Gloria? How unfair of Matron to evoke that soaring chorale, which always made me feel that I stood with every mortal creature looking up to the heavens in dumb wonder. She understood my unformed character. But Matron, I can't dream of playing Bach, the Gloria, I said under my breath. I never played a string or wind instrument. I couldn't read music. No, Marion, she said, her gaze soft, reaching for me, her gnarled hands rough on my cheeks. No, not Bach's Gloria, yours. Your Gloria lives within you. The greatest sin is not finding it, ignoring what God made possible in you. I was temperamentally better suited to a cognitive discipline, to an introspective field, internal medicine, or perhaps psychiatry. The sight of the operating theater made me sweat. The idea of holding a scalpel caused coils to form in my belly. It still does. Surgery was the most difficult thing I could imagine. And so I became a surgeon. Abraham Verghese is professor for the theory and practice of medicine at the Stanford University School of Medicine and senior associate chair of the Department of Internal Medicine. He is the author of My Own Country, A Doctor's Story, and The Tennis Partner, A Story of Friendship and Loss. His best-selling novel, Cutting for Stone, is now available as a trade paperback. Thank you for joining me, Abraham. Thanks for having me. You know, the title of this novel itself cuts two ways, refers to the main characters, but also to the Hippocratic Oath and to uh, a vision of medicine that I don't think we can know, we can only barely comprehend now. Yeah, I mean, the title I hoped would be slightly mysterious, and I think titles, to my mind, work when they are a bit mysterious and when they expand in the reader's consciousness at a certain moment in the book. Um, So at one level, it's about this family, uh, the stones, you know, the the father is Thomas Stone, the sons are Marion and Shiva Stone, and there is a sense of each one's destiny being predicated by the actions of the of the other, which I guess is true of all of us as father and fathers and sons. 
But I also wanted it to echo with something of the medicine of antiquity. And there was always this line in the Hippocratic Oath that I loved. It's an antique line. It has no bearing on modern practice. And it was a line that said, I will not cut for stone. And one of the great joys of attending commencements is people stand up and recite the Hippocratic Oath. The students do. And they invite uh, people in the audience who are physicians to also stand. And so we all stand and say, I will not cut for stone. And it refers to a medieval period when bladder stones were epidemic, kidney stones were epidemic. People died in agony because they had stones the size of tennis balls obstructing their bladder and you know, died because they couldn't pee, uh, children. And there were these itinerant surgeons who would go from town to town and they had learned a secret on cutting for stone, cutting with a knife above the pubic bone or in front of the anus and various ways of, uh, skilled ways of pulling out the stone, which would relieve suffering but immediately uh, probably cause death from infection in the next two days or so. Uh, but there was always this strange prescription, thou, will, thou shalt not cut for stone, but leave it to those skilled in that trade, you know. And uh, I don't know, I just love the ring of that line. And unlike my previous two books, I had the title long before I had anything else. I knew it was going to be called Cutting for Stone. Well, you know, one of the things that this book is about is our changing perceptions of the physical world and, and how medicine itself, because medicine itself used to be a, a series of almost spiritual remedies, and we've come full circle from cutting out spirits and trying to release the animal spirits to being so fully immersed in the physicality and the biology of the body that we have a, an almost primitive view now of the spiritual nature uh, of the patient. Yeah, I think you put that very well. I mean, our fascination with biology and science has made us almost forget the critical role of ritual and ceremony and the presence of the physician, the, the importance of, you know, the, the healing uh, effect that one's words and demeanor can have. And uh, it's really quite astonishing that uh, we can be so far advanced in medicine and be at a stage where patient, patients, for the most part, are often discontent with medicine, discontent with the, the way it's delivered, discontent with the number of different people involved. Um, so you're quite right. I, I believe strongly that uh, this aspect of medicine, the visiting with the patient, the examination of the body by the skilled examiner, these are aspects of medicine that should be unchanged since antiquity. That, um, you know, that ritual where someone actually tells you things they wouldn't tell their rabbi or priest, and then incredibly they undress and allow touch, which in any other context would be assault. And to me that speaks of a, a very important ceremony. And if we approach it with, you know, with a distraction, if we approach it without investing in it just as much as the patient's investing in it, if we approach it without lack of, without skill, then we miss out on the transformation that accompanies every ritual. You know, rituals like marriage and baptism are all about transformation. And I think this ritual signals the sealing of the patient-physician bond, and it signals uh, giving substance to the patient's complaints. You are now taking the patient's story and locating it on the body. And the fact that you have images that can do that doesn't necessarily get you away from this ritual. So. Uh, a lot of what I'm trying to teach here uh, at Stanford and I think what our 
department subscribes to and believes in is the sense that you can have cutting-edge science, but you must not lose sight of the art of medicine, which is very much about, you know, the personhood of the patient, of the person you're with, not their disease label, but their personhood. And, um, you know, I think we're all conscious of that. We pay lip service to that. But I think it's becoming even more critical in this day and age where, honestly, you can wind up getting medical care without hardly seeing a physician, where your images and the tests you arrive with can drive the therapy. And it might make you, it might cure you, but it might not heal you. It might not leave you with that sense of satisfaction. And, you know, I've said this for years, and of late there have been some really interesting studies about placebo and the placebo effect. And we mm-hmm. now know that placebo is much more than just a sugar pill. Placebo is context, it's tone of voice, it's whether you know you're getting a drug or not getting a drug, whether you think the drug is such and such, it's about the ceremony around that. And we're recognizing that the placebo effect produces profound neurobiological changes. You can get a Parkinson's patient not just to move more smoothly, but for their dopamine levels to go up. Uh, you can demonstrate increase in endorphins. So these are very real effects, and it's almost a way to, I think, to put some science behind the thing that we've always said, which is that ceremony, ritual, and bi- bonding with the patient are of huge consequence. And I think we're finally realizing that 30 to 40% of any therapeutic effect we have has to do with this aspect of our personal interactions. And if we don't get that right, we may have the right drug, but we're losing 30 to 40% of its efficacy. You know, it, it strikes me that in some ways our current, what we, what we feel to be this thoroughly modern approach to medicine will in maybe 40 or 50 years be come to see as just incredibly primitive in a, in a spiritual manner. I, I, the, I, all I can think of is uh, Einstein's description of quantum mechanics as spooky action at a distance. And, <laughs> and I think there's a lot of that that happens in, in as you said, the, the placebo effect and the doctor-patient relationship. And that's also spoken to in this novel as well. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I think that the novel in many ways, even though I didn't intend it to be by any means to be some sort of, you know, lecture or political statement, it winds up getting at the heart of... Uh, what I think of as the difference between healing and curing. You know, I think you can cure someone, which is always a wonderful goal, uh, but sometimes you cannot cure and yet you can still heal. And, uh, you know, I learned that very painfully during the HIV era where I found that, you know, I would go to patients' houses when I no longer could see them in the clinic and they were unable to come. And I would go out of my own frustration because I had no cure, no medicine, nothing to offer them. And in, in arriving in their houses, I would discover that my visit was extraordinarily powerful in terms of the effect it had on the family, on the patient, helping everyone come to terms with this illness and come to terms with the fatal, fatal outcome. And also perhaps subconsciously or consciously conveying to the patient, I will never, never abandon you. I will see you through this uh, to the end, which, you know, I don't think is stated often enough or and it needs to be. And the analogy I use with my students is I say, you know, to talk about healing versus curing, if you go home after this lecture and you find your apartment's broken into and the lock is in splinters, all your belongings are strewn about and your cash is gone, jewelry's gone, television's gone, computer's gone, you will be devastated at the physical loss you've suffered. But you'll also, 
have a sense of violation that's quite beyond the physical loss, a sense of why me, why now? And if the police come by an hour later and say, we caught the person who did this, here's your stuff back, you will be cured, but you will not be healed. You know, you would have your physical loss restored, but your sense of violation would linger to the point where you might actually move out of that apartment. And I think, you know, that, that duality of healing versus curing fascinates me. And in the book, as you know, there's a riddle that recurs again and again where one physician and I don't think it's giving away too much to say this, one physician asks another physician, what treatment in an emergency is administered by air? And the answer is words of comfort. Now that's sort of a, you know, it's a sort of a clever trope to throw out, but it's actually extraordinarily meaningful. I think that one of the most important treatments in an emergency is words of comfort. And if we neglect that because we're too busy with, you know, worrying about blood pressure and this and that, we, uh, we do the patient a disservice, just as much as if we fail to recognize the blood pressure is dropping. Well, words are, are certainly important in your novel. And one of the things that just captures us from the very first paragraph through the final word is the wonderful voice of Marion Stone. This is a, a real tours voice. And one of the things I think that makes this book so powerful and entertaining is that you manage to achieve a, a sense of gra gra gravitas and destiny and fate, yet he, he approaches everything with a kind of a sense of the absurdity and a little bit of an undercutting sense of humor that makes it really charming. Well, I'm glad you say so, and thank you so much. I mean... It was not a voice arrived at, at, at sort of overnight, you know, it was <laughs> so much trial and error and uh, so many ways of trying to tell the story and finally arriving at the idea of this is a young boy's story but told when he's grown up and looking back and also told when he's sort of come through an ordeal that makes him very aware of his own mortality and so he's able to tell the story in a voice that perhaps is both wise and you know, and uh, and has that awareness of mortality. So there's actually a little trick in the book, which I, I can even point out to your readers, which is we begin in the first person with Marion saying, my brother Shiva and I were born in the year of our Lord, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, the, and he's telling the story from the womb in a sense. Mm -hmm. And then the first person voice disappears and uh, really doesn't come up again till part two of the book when it resumes in full force. And the reader, one hopes, never asks or even notices that this is happening. And I think, you know, the measure of if, if it works or if it doesn't work is, does it work or doesn't work? Does it not work for the reader? Um, so I guess what I'm getting at is that voice is perhaps the most extraordinarily difficult thing to find in a, in a novel and uh, so much experimentation involved. And I'm just so glad to hear that you say that you you liked it and that it worked. And, you know, I think you're not alone. Lots of people uh, seem to have gravitated to this voice. And it's not me, but then again, I suppose it is to some level me because it came out of my head. And it does reflect some of the views of the world that I that I have. It's such a remarkable story. And you announce in the very first sentence that we're looking at a life epic here. Uh, was this a decision you made when you started to write the novel? You know, it's, it's amazing to confess how little I knew of the novel when I embarked on it, which is, uh, I knew that I wanted it to be, uh, I knew that I, I had this image of a nun giving birth to twins in an operating room in a mission hospital in Africa, which itself is, you know, almost a, 
a preposterous way to begin. I had that vision. I also knew how much I loved medicine, you know, and how much I am caught up in the romance and adventure of what it is to train as a physician and to be a physician and to train young physicians. And um, I very much wanted to imbue this book with as much of that as I could. Uh, and I also wanted to contrast medicine on two continents, uh, reflecting very much my own experiences uh, of medicine in resource-poor areas uh, compared to medicine here with all the excesses of our, of our medical treatment. And in, in contrasting those two, find a way to get at what is true. But uh, did I know that it would be as sweeping and as big? Uh, not really. I think uh, had I known, I might have been even discouraged, I suspect. So I, I, I think novelists fall into two groups, ones who know their whole story and others who sort of follow a, a thread and keep pushing. And I was clearly in that follow-the-thread uh, category. Lots of dead ends, hundreds of pages and many months gone in the wrong direction, but you couldn't have known that till you went down that path. So, you know, I, 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 I'm so delighted by the reaction people have to the book. But I look back and I'm even more sort of nostalgic for the, you know, very isolated moments of discovery that transformed this eight-year process of writing the book. You know, this, these eureka mo moments about what the voice would be or what this person was going to do, which I didn't know till then, or this person was going to die. You know, those are the things that I think I will recall the most. One of the things I think that's so interesting about this is that this is, you know, uh, uh, it's a historical novel. And it's also a novel, as you mentioned, of comparing medicine and technology and culture on, on two continents. And I'd like you to talk about uh, the kind of research and how your life experience informed these, these two visions and also how to inform the language because the language changes back and forth too. Okay, yeah, I think uh, that's very astute uh, of you to point that out. I, I must say that I, as a preface, I, I might mention that I, I think of novels as being a very legitimate form of getting at the truth. You know, when a novel resonates for you, it's because it echoes some version of truth that you uh, feel is resonating with your own version of what you know to be true, which is why I'm very impatient with people who say, I only read nonfiction, I only read serious books, and a novel is you know, beneath me. I always point to uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin, you know, I mean, that, that's a book that changed America. It ended slavery in America, essentially somebody's fictional creation. Uh, and yes, it was fictional, but there was a truth to it underlying that. And I think my, my goal with this book was to get at the truth of, um, you know, how medicine is in resource-poor areas and how it is here and, um, you know, to, 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 to populate it with the kind of rich language and metaphor that is inherent to medicine. And in many ways, I think one of my models was uh, someone who isn't read very much now is uh, Emile Zola. Zola is a wonderful French writer, writes in French, so I haven't read him except in translation, but one of his books, uh, his book on Paris, is an extraordinary book because, you know, it has a very dense plot and things are happening and it sort of pits religion against uh, government and so on. But behind it, almost as a continuous drumbeat, is Paris. And every page is imbued with the scents and sounds of Paris and the landmarks and the people 
And I was very determined to try and make this book that substantive in terms of specific things about medicine, specific terminologies. And, you know, as a reader, uh, I don't know, uh, you know, much about golf, for example. I don't, I think I'm the only physician in North America, in Northern California, certainly, who doesn't play golf. Um, but I love reading John Updike on golf, and I love the terminology. And uh, some of it I understand, some of it I'm guessing at. It doesn't really matter. I think when someone creates a world that's technically very accurate, you sense it. And um, my, my great desire was to create a geography that was true, and it definitely reflected my own experiences. So I was born in Africa, in Ethiopia. My life paralleled Marian, Marian's in the larger themes of you know, going to medical school there and having my education interrupted by war and so on. Uh, but I was not a twin and, you know, did not grow up in a mission hospital. All of that was imagination. But I did very much want to use geography in a very concrete fashion, use geography almost as though it were a character. Uh, there's a wonderful aphorism attributed, I think, to Napoleon, who said that geography is destiny. And he was talking about... Um, France and its position, you know, in the uh, English Channel, Atlantic, so on. Uh, and to me, that was a very profound statement that was going to operate in this book, where characters would wind up changing geography, which would bring about huge changes in their destiny, or characters' geography would be changed on them for whatever reason and trigger a change in their destiny. And so I, I, I kept wanting to play with that image of you know, shifting lo locale changes you, which is what happens, I think. One of the things that makes this book so enjoyable are the, the wonderful character arcs you've created uh, for, for all of your characters in here. And, and they come alive for us, and we see the characters transformed by time and understand that these kind of transformations also happen to us, and we don't... It, internally, it's difficult for us to track our own character arc. But when we see it on the printed page or experience it as we read a novel, we can get an idea of maybe what's happening to, to us. And I think that the way that you crafted this is extraordinarily powerful. So uh, tell me, um, at, at once you kind of had the, the main characters in, in this novel, in, in your mind, did you know what was going to happen to them? No, not. Uh, by the way, I love what you just said about you know uh, how we see some truths about ourselves through fictional characters, and I think that is the function of stories. I mean, we 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 identify with stories, and we find a compass. I mean, stories are like compasses that point us different ways, and we resonate with stories that are pointing us in certain directions that mimic perhaps the directions we pick or we want to pick. Um, my characters evolved very gradually. I mean, they were certainly not as well-rounded when I started as, as you know, after the hundredth iteration of that character. Uh, I had a wonderful editor, have a wonderful editor, Robert Desser, who, you know, would kept, keep responding to, to me. Uh, you know, Ghosh, for example, one of the major characters in the book, Dr. Ghosh, was, uh, in her view, too much of a rake when that was not my intention, I wanted him to be, you know, like all of us, good and bad, and uh, but largely good. And yes, he's had some, you know, things he's done in the past that don't hold up to scrutiny as well. Uh, so it took many sort of iterations to, to get that right. And um, 
I did not know where it was all going. Uh, I just had created these very real people to me, and uh, there came a point in the book, I remember dis distinctly, where my editor called me. It was about two-thirds of the way through the book or less, and she said, Abraham, you have to know what's going to happen now because otherwise there's too many possibilities and you know this is going to go on forever. So I actually flew up to New York and I visited with her for one for two days and we sat together and I would free associate and she would respond and you know the excitement of her response would either trigger more free association or shut me down you know and uh, and I left New York and I had the rest of the book outlined and I felt such liberation because I could now focus on language and not worry about what's going to happen, how many months is it going to take me to discover that that's not what should happen. Uh, but I must say, even so, there were huge surprises that took place and, uh, you know, a character dying when I had never seen it coming. And I, I you know, and, and writing that death scene, I cried because, and yet it felt like this was the right thing that had to happen. So it's a strange mix of plotting things out, but also accepting that you know, writing is inherently mysterious. And, you know, I always think that I have to be in the act of writing, trying to write for for the right brain or the muse, whatever you call it, to kick in. So writing is essentially mysterious, and you can plot it out, but you'll still, I think, wind up having many, many surprises. So I did not know the whole story, but my characters uh, certainly took me the, to the end. You know, one of the things I noticed about the prose of this, this is it's very medical and biological, and, and you write about operations in, in the human body in a really interesting way so that it uh, we get a, a feel for what it's really like to be there in mm -hmm. those rooms with the surgery. But it's not off-putting or frightening. There's a sense, and I think I mentioned this earlier, almost of absurdity or uh, you approach this with a, a kind of generous sense of humor that, that I guess almost a joy in, in things that might just like, if we were to see them on television or just see them in real life, might just scare the bejesus out of us. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a fine line. I mean, uh, and I, uh, you know, your mention of television, it used to be that when Somerset Mom wrote about, uh, you know, the, the Far Isles and uh, traveling to, um, you know, wherever, that was, about the only way people could get a sense of, you know, places like Bermuda or, you know, wherever he traveled. Um, but these days with the television camera, there's not a place we haven't been. You know, there's not an operating theater that we haven't stuck our nose into via the television camera. And you would think that, therefore, there's nothing more to write about. But it's a very curious thing. I actually think that the camera doesn't interpret for you. And the great joy of writing is that you're not only able to lead the reader to these faraway places like Ethiopia, which, you know, if they want to, they could see it on National Geographic and so on. But you're giving them a context that only writing can give. You know, you're giving them, you're giving them the opportunity to create with you this fictional movie in their head of this land. Similarly, when you operate with them, you're giving them the opportunity to open their own body in this fictional movie that they're making in their head. And I think it's a fine line how much medical detail you put in without turning the reader off and how much you put in to, to cater to what I think we all feel, which is, you know, how can you talk about sensuality and, and not be referring to your own body? And so therefore, how could you not see 
on operation or things that happen to your body as being central. I, I mean, I, admittedly, it's a stretch, but, you know, I find myself infinitely curious as to, you know, do I really have two kidneys or maybe I am one of these people who has three or one and, you know, is my heart on the left or the right side? You know, knowing this world the way I do for 55 years of being alive, I actually know so little about the inside of my body. I find myself curious. And so when an opportunity pops up to take a peek inside, so to speak, uh, I think we're all <laughs> we're all uh, willing to dive in. If we can have someone lead us through it and not bog us down in the blood and the gore and the and the shock and so on. You know, uh, one of the things that's that's really interesting in this book is to look at medical technology across the two continents in Africa and America. And I think one of the things that that comes out of reading this book is we think of medical technology as being needles, X-rays, and all the you know accoutrements uh, of our modern civilization, but the way, and we, and especially here in America, have forgotten that the means by which health care is delivered, the means by which people who are sick get access to what it is that may or may not make them well, that itself is a kind of technology. And here, it's startlingly primitive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You mean here in America? Here in America, yeah, yes. Yeah. No, I think that's very well said. I think that what allows, what happens when you use the contrast of Africa versus America is when you don't have the clutter of, you know, technology and imaging and all the, all the sort of cost centers that, you know, develop around that. I mean, we're in a country where we're paid to do things to patients as opposed to do things for patients. So the more things get paid, the more you get paid to do something, the more you wind up doing that thing. So if you wondered why they're freestanding surgery centers, cancer centers, cardiac centers, you know, it's because that's where the money is. You know, you don't, you don't, strikingly, you don't find a single freestanding geriatric center. <laughs> There's no money in that. So the beauty about going to Africa in this novel is that you have sort of the bare bones patient with the physician. And there's something about that that I think really makes the, the physician-patient relationship emerge. You get a good sense of the fiduciary nature of this relationship, of the, you know, the tremendous sort of responsibility the physician has to the patient, uncluttered by other people sharing the responsibility. It's really their responsibility. So I think that was, that was what I was wanting to get at. And the fact that in that setting, you can rely on the bedside exam in a manner that is both therapeutic and diagnostic. You know, and I, I, I joke around here, but only half joke, that if you come to our hospital uh, missing a finger, uh, no one will believe you unless they get a CAT scan, MRI, and an orthopedic consult. You know, our postmodern era diagnosis is such that we no longer trust our eyes, ears, <laughs> sense of smell, nothing. You know, uh, we have become so dependent on imaging that it's almost as though all those other things atrophied for us. And, you know, I, I, I love the idea of playing with that, playing with the absurdity of, you know, the excesses of technology. Although I, I must say in the book, for the most part, people are using technology well. They're sort of, you know, old-fashioned in that sense. Yeah. Talk, let's talk a little bit uh, about the, the tracks of these different characters. Um, 
Marion and Shiva are our Japanese twins. Now, Siamese. Uh, d- d- explain explain <laughs> what, what, what that is. And, and well, is um, that a real The Siamese twins is obviously a, a mm-hmm. real term, mm-hmm. referring to ter- twins who are connected. But I have a young probationer nurse refer to them as Japanese twins because she can't quite remember the terminology <laughs> and she knows it's something oriental. So <laughs> she comes up with, in her note, she writes Japanese twins. Um, you know, I, I think that it's interesting how you can, after the fact, you can come up with all kinds of theories as to why you did certain things, you know, and uh, they might seem very clever to the reader. And I'm always amused with my previous books where I'd received theses where someone had written a master's thesis or something like that on one of my books and ascribing me all these wonderful motives and and thoughts and plans that were well beyond my pay grade. You know, I certainly wasn't capable of all the things that they that they said. So I'm, I'm just offering this as a caveat that what I have to say now is suspect because it's after the fact. But once the twins emerged, I did like the thought that, you know, twins are the closest thing we have to clones. We can't, we can clone human beings, but we don't and we shouldn't. And therefore, twins are the closest thing we have to clones. Uh, these are two individuals who are genetic copies of each other. And so genetically, they're identical. Any differences that emerge in later life are therefore largely environmental. And you know that's why people love twin studies in medicine, because you get a really good sense of what is inherited, what is not. How much is genetic, how much is not, you know? Uh, is, is being gay an inherited trait, an acquired trait? Is, uh, you know, the all, all musicality, is that acquired, is that, so on. Um, so I love this notion of these twins being genetically identical, but one of them being subjected to an environmental insult at the moment of birth. In other words, the, the clamp that his father used to try and extract him, resulting in a very different twin, even though they were genetically identical. And this difference winding up, you know, magnifying to the point of almost being the most important thing in the novel, and yet their genetical identicalness in the end winding up being also the most important thing in the novel. So, um, you know, I think that was that was my... That is the intention I state now. Did I know all this setting out? Sometimes I think subconsciously I must have, you know, because twins are dangerous for writers. They're a trap, you know. It's so tempting to, you know. They're a staple of Bollywood movies. And so as soon as I created twins, I thought to myself, what are you doing? You're just just reworking the line of every Bollywood movie where, you know, one twin disappears and is rediscovered as being poor, the other is rich. Of course, I didn't quite get that corny, but... um, so twins are a trap. You have to be very careful. You can easily lose the reader. And um, and I hope I, I kept the reader with these this particular set of twins. You know, this book has a lot of uh, gritty um, observations of life in America, gritty observations of life in Africa. We have a lot of science in this book. There's a whole um, teeming uh, surface in this novel that's very real and photographable, as it were. But the, the, one of the joys of this novel is the, the spiritual nature of your writing and of the characters and of the story. This is a novel that's just fraught with destiny and the intertwinings of fate. And I'd like you to talk about evoking these feelings of destiny and this feeling of spirituality in a novel that is very gritty and historically based. 
You know, I think that, um, again, what I say might be slightly suspect because, you know, post hoc, it's easy to, easy to sort of pontificate about what I was trying to do and my theme was, you know, and uh, it is suspect when I say anything about that. But I also was sort of very pleased how the novel emerged and became very much about life and death themes and about meaning in life, you know. And these, I think, are burning issues for all of us. And, uh, you know, someone said that novels are instructions for living. And so the characters should be wrestling with the very things you and I wrestle with, which is the issue of our mortality, the issue of, you know, how do we, how do we extract meaning from this world given that we are mortal beings? And, um, you know, so I very much wanted to wrestle with issues that were profound and grave. You know, I have a nun, matron, you know, whose life is that of a saint, but whose faith, her, she herself would be the first to admit that her faith sometimes, you know, suffers. Um, I wanted to play with the idea of physicians and their, quotes, nobility, um, because my sense is that, you know, from observing the real world, that medicine can save you in, in, in the sense that if you're, as many of us are, an incomplete person and uh, full of misgivings and self-doubt, as I think most of us are gro growing up, children often by their very nature are growing up saying, I'm not okay. Medicine has this particular power to make you feel you're okay, or at least give you the sense that because you're investing all this effort in helping others, you don't have to wrestle with this particular issue of your own destiny. Uh, but in, in, in actual fact, that might be true to some degree, but there's usually a wake-up moment. There's a moment when you get this wake-up call from your subconscious and you realize, oh, I still have to figure it out for myself. Or you find, well, I've become a great doctor, but I've destroyed my family, and I've lost all the things that are truly meaningful. So I really wanted to play with that, you know, and I think, um, I, I actually think that we don't do a very good job often in America of dealing with death, and I'm sure that I won't do much better. But in, what I mean is that we're often in denial of it, you know, unlike many other societies where they have, you know, vibrant rituals around death, where there's a sense of, very much a sense of life being a circle and things are being renewed. Uh, you know, we see lots of death on television and car chases and, you know, uh, ever more violent video games. But whenever it pops up in our life, even if it's at the end of a robust life, it always seems to be a great surprise, some sort of, you know, a way that the government is cheating you out of something that you're owed. <laughs> I'm, I'm not being flippant about this, but what, I, what I'm saying is that I wanted to wrestle with death, uh, you know, in this novel and its meaning. And uh, so perhaps that's what you mean when you say, I don't quite know the words you use, but I mean, I think it's serious in that sense, because I mean, ultimately, medicine is a very serious business. We're usually seeing people in a crucible at a moment when their lives are being compressed or radically changed because of something. And their whole world becomes about, becomes all about life and death and meaning and where does meaning reside and you know and I think if there is a moral from this book it's that only love endures you know only love endures and that ultimately the relationships you form over a lifetime are the things that uh, you can look back on as being your legacy nothing else quite survives you um, something like that well, I love the the vision of family in this in this book is is really fascinating because uh, you 
start you start with a family that is essentially uh, annihilated as it is created. Mm-hmm. Yes, indeed. Yeah, and then I show a family being formed again. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I think again, I, it's difficult to say what prompted me to do that. Uh, starting with a nun, mm-hmm. and uh, I didn't even—I di- actually thought that she would remain much more of a character. But she sort of remains only as a ghostly character, in a sense, in the book. I think we're all fascinated by nuns, to some degree, the way I was fascinated as a child by doctors. Uh, but nuns especially, I mean, they they set themselves up as being, you know, uh, ha- having made this special contract with uh, Christ, brides of Christ, and take on a special garment that reflects their renunciation of the world. And, uh, you know, it's utterly fascinating. And... When uh, and, and they essentially give up their womanhood, or at least they give it up to Christ. And so when a nun fails in that, uh, we don't actually take satisfaction in it, we, but we, we actually feel a sense of relief that in a way they're expressing the human uh, struggle we all have, where our aims and our aspirations don't often meet up with the reality of our you know, our ability to execute. So all I can say is that that I began with some of these themes and uh, I've spent the last year or so, uh, you know, talking about this book in various ways. It's been out now in paperback for a while. And one of the co- commonest questions is, uh, is this autobiographical? And I would quickly protest that it wasn't. I mean, except in the very gross sense of my being born in that country. But the more I think about it, I, the more I have to say, well, I suppose it is in the sense that all the stuff came out of my head and and so these must be the themes that are important in my life. And I'm delighted to find that they are also probably important in everybody's life, which is why the book is resonating with so many people. I mean, it's just utterly wonderful. I'm, I, I, feel, uh, I feel quite blessed. I don't know if I'll ever produce another book. Uh, it seems like such a monumental task each time. But the response to this one uh, has just been so extraordinary that... Uh, it really made me feel I, I hit a chord. It resonated at some very basic level with you know so many readers, and that's just lovely. You know, you mentioned Zola earlier on, um, and, and as I read this, I I thought of you know Dickens, and I, I'm wondering if you talk about uh, some of your your experience of literature. I'm you're a, a doctor. You've been steeped in. Um, very peculiar form of literature, the, the medical journals and, the, and all the things that you know you need to read to to perform your task. Talk about how much fiction has informed your journey as a doctor and how that led you to become a writer. Well, you know, I came to medicine because of a book, and you know, I think if you speak to a generation of physicians, uh, my generation, and probably before mine, the generations are two before mine, they would often speak of a book as having drawn them to medicine. That was how the fire began. And uh, in America, that book was often Aerosmith by Sinclair Lewis, or it was Microbe Hunting by Paul de Cruyff. In England, it was The Citadel, which is a lovely book by A.J. Cronin. For me, it was of human bondage, and some aspect of that book just made medicine seem very, very attractive. Um, and 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 I resist this temptation to make me into two people. I'm either a doctor or a writer, you know. And people ask, "How do you, you know, switch from this role to that role?" And I, and I resist that because I really see myself as 
fundamentally a physician. I love the practice of medicine. It completely defines my world. And if I took it away, um, you know, as I tell my family, uh, there would be nothing left of me. I would have no identity, I feel. This is so much wrapped into my identity. And the writing comes out of that love of medicine. I mean, it really doesn't come out as something separate, uh, like, you know, I took up golf in my old age or something. It really came out of my love of medicine. And when I decided to take it even more seriously by, you know, attending the Iowa Writers' Workshop and applying there, and if they took me, I would go, I said, and and they did, I began to, you know, just be a lot more thoughtful about the role of literature. But it's interesting, I've come back to writing, trying to emulate the kind of books that I always loved that seemed to sort of trigger my life in a certain direction. And it was indeed Dickens. Uh, it was also people like uh, Gunter Grass and John Irving who, you know, weaved these fantastic stories that lingered with you. Uh, I was very influenced by the sort of prose style of people like John Le Carre and, uh, uh, you know, Graham Greene to some degree, Gabriel Garcia Marquez and his, you know, his lovely language. So I think one borrows from everyone. And I've always felt that stories were terribly important in medicine. And, uh, you know, I don't formally teach this, but I often encourage my students to look at a particular novel. Um, because I think that, that one of the great dangers of coming into medicine is that even though you came to medicine because you were drawn for some personal reason to the suffering of others, the irony is you can come through medicine and get so cynical that you forget uh, you no longer have the capacity to imagine the suffering of your patient. They become the heart attack in bed two and the diabetic foot in bed three. And literature has a wonderful ability to restore your imagination for the suffering of others. And I will very often give people the story, The Death of Ivan Illich by Tolstoy. It's a remarkable story. I mean, you can read a hospice textbook, you can read a cancer textbook about the end of life, you can read a psychiatric work about the end of life, and never quite get the sense of what it is to be in the shoes of a dying man, as when you read The Death of Ivan Illich. Uh, so I think literature has always been a very powerful influence, and I suppose one, one reason to write this novel, if one needs reasons, is I really wanted to turn a generation of Younger, younger readers who don't quite know medicine the way I know it, who perhaps don't see it as, you know, if you're watching Scrubs on TV or House or ER, God knows what your perception of medicine is like. And I can assure you it's nothing like ER or House or Scrubs or, you know, and maybe I'm being unfair because I can barely watch those shows. They're really, uh, you know, I just can't get very far into them before I have to stop. And my my family kicks me out of the room because I'm making you know, snide asides and so on. But I wanted to write a book that I hope created a, a more real version of what medicine is like, both the, you know, the everydayness, the sort of um, tautology of medicine, as opposed to the grand drama, which doesn't play out every day, you know. Most of medicine is really about kind of a kind of faithfulness. It's like, you know, hanging in a, in a marriage for better or worse, and it's mostly been worse, or it's you know had a long spell of worse, but you're going to hang in there. Medicine has that quality of faithfulness that um, I'm not sure comes across. Uh, the the doctors I admire the the most in this world, you would never have heard of. They perform yeoman work day after day in some quiet, unheralded setting, and uh, by some accident of fate, I've met them and I see them. 
So I wanted to try and celebrate people like that in the life of Dr. Ghosh, uh, people who the world would never otherwise know about. I, I love your sense of story in here. A and you have stories that there's this uh, uh, a tapestry of powerful character arcs and then stories within stories and and almost like little uh, frescoes and, and asides. Um, so could you talk a, a little bit about your sense of how story works within this novel? Because it's, um, it's more than just that sweeping arc of the whole novel, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Well, I think, I think um, you know, I really come to think that what makes us human is that you know, we take disparate facts and we make them into story, you know, and our lives are successions of stories. I mean, this day as it unfolds, if we were to look back at it, it will be, you know, a multitude of small stories. And then the week will be a larger arc of a story and then the month will be, you know, and that's how it sort of goes. Um, so I'm convinced that stories are inherent to human beings. It's actually f fascinating how commonplace stories are in every culture, how they often have, uh, you know, very similar uh, endings. I mean, for example, the business of uh, Abraham sacrificing his son Isaac on the mountain or about to sacrifice it uh, before God stops him. I mean, you can find that story in every culture, every mythology, every religion. So I think there's something quite intrinsic to our our survival uh, to to be obsessed with stories and to use them to find meaning, to use them as a compass to point our way. For me, it's perhaps more complex because um, as a physician, when we see a patient, what do we do? We take a history. And what is a history but a story? And, and, as, I, and as, I'm, as I enter my, you know, 26th or 7th year of practice, however many it's been, I'm, I'm convinced again and again that what I bring to the table as a consultant or as an attending physician on the Stanford wards, you know, I don't necessarily know more than the intern or the medical student. Often I do, but very often they know more about that particular thing because they've been reading about it last night and I haven't. But what I do bring is a much deeper appreciation of story. So if I'm able to, quote, solve a, a case that eluded a, a novice, uh, it may only be, be because that that story echoed with my repertoire of other stories and that I looked for an ending since I knew that these stories have that kind of an ending or I looked for the missing link or I sought out details that, you know, had I, that I had seen in similar stories like this. So I'm, I'm, I'm time and time again reminded that even medicine is really all about stories and we're looking at patterns and we're calling on past experiences and we're you know, sort of using that model to, to sort things out. So, uh, yeah, I, I don't know if that answers your question, but I, I think I'm not unique. I think we're all living story, whether we know it or not. And you have to be completely colorless to, to not see the world that way, I would think. I've been speaking with Abraham Verghese. His new novel is Cutting for Stone. It's now out in trade paperback. Thank you for joining me, Abraham. Thank you so much for having me. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.